This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. And in this episode, I have the great honor of welcoming consulting winemaker, Jean Holflieger. Now, Jean is a man with a quixotic mission. He is inspired and driven by the quest for creative perfection, while knowing full well that it can never be achieved. That's kind of interesting. An artisan who has always been motivated to push the envelope. He relies on a commitment to consistent scientific research, matched by an open-minded entrepreneurial creativity. With his background in international finance and decades of wine industry experience, Jean brings to his clients a rare combination of expertise in winemaking, viticulture, and real-world business acumen. Now, Jean was born and raised in Switzerland, where his first winery experience was at his godfather's estate. He soon left for California, where he worked for Michel Chambouget and Hartford family in Sonoma, followed by moves to Bordeaux in South Africa, where he made wine at the esteemed estates of Chateau Carbonet and Mirlas, respectively. After earning degrees in enology and viticultural and science in Switzerland, Jean returned to Bordeaux to make wine at one of my favorite estates, Chateau Lynchbage. Moving back to California, he spent five years as winemaker for Newton Vineyards from 2001 to 2005, which is kind of interesting because Jean is part of a very unique alumni from Newton Vineyards. Jean was part of the Alpha Omega team from its inception in 2006, where he was winemaker and general manager. But earlier this year, Jean decided to exit the winemaking side and enjoy just being an owner. Now, he has built his client wineries over the years to include projects in Tuscany, Sonoma County, and Napa Valley. Jean's passion, knowledge, scientific training, and business experience put him in a very unique position to take the best grapes from around the world and transform them into wines and brands worthy of global attention. Jean, welcome to the podcast. Wow, what an introduction. You are a man of many seasons. Thanks for having me, Scott. Well, you know, I guess a passion is is limitless if you want to live it to the fullest. So, so you know, in wine, I think it's a never-ending equation, and and the more you can learn, the better it is. So, so you know, I think a lot of time people don't realize that we follow in the wine industry a vegetative cycle, and so you have one shot per year. It's not like like writing an essay where you trash the essay and start over. You have to follow a vegetative cycle. I'm 48. Today. If I'm lucky enough, I have another 30 vintage ahead of me. So the more you know, regions, the more vineyards, and the more appellation you work with, the more you're going to be exposed to different equations to learn faster. Well, I'm kind of interested in your background a little bit. You were raised in Switzerland, and I mentioned in, in your introduction that your first winery experience was at your godfather's estate. What was that, and how did you get into it? And can you take me from there? Yeah, with pleasure. Uh, you know, uh, in my family, both I was born and raised in Switzerland. You know, from a an American mother and a Swiss dad, and and both all males on both sides of the pond went to law school. So I, th- I thought I would I would follow the same path, and 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 started law school. And and the problem is, after two years of law school, all that I really did was drinking coffee in the morning with my friends playing cards. And around 11, you know, we all looked at each other and say, okay, guys, uh, what house are we hitting today uh, to 
keep on playing cards and having a bottle of wine. And so, you know, I discovered wine through my family, through through these things. And 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 after law school and understanding that it was not my cup of tea, I went to, to wealth management and the finance, but that wine theme kept coming back. So I asked my godfather, uh, you know, can I work in your, in your in your winery? And it was a winery that was, you know, created and found, founded in, in, in 1536. Uh, in, in, wow. Uh, you know, on Lake, on Lake yeah. So, so it's been a very long time, obviously, in in, in his family, on the, on the Lake of Geneva. And I said, can I can I see if you know, cellar winemaking, the wine world is really what I want to do. And so the first day, I'll never forget, the winemaker asked me, so what do you want to do? And I look at him, I'm like, you're the boss. I'm a novice. I barely know how to taste wine. Do you tell me so? And he said, okay, let's go taste wine. And so we went and tasted 62 different t- tanks. And I didn't know you were supposed to spit. And I think- Oh, no. I was so drunk and happy that I came home and said, I'm never going to leave that industry again. Obviously, today I learned how to spit because I, I taste an average of 50 wine per day. Uh, so, so thank goodness I know how to spit. But that's the real story behind it. That's amazing. And then you went on to this incredible career. I mean, some of the wineries that I just talked about in your introduction are fairly esteemed, you know, very famous. How did you fall into those particular occupations? I, you know, I, I think life is all about timing and luck. Uh, you know, when you see Chateau Carbonneau, when you see Lynch Barge, when you see, uh, you know, Newton, it's, it was always reaching out to them with an unsolicited resume and, and, and looking at what and how I, I, can, I, I can do it. And, and I remember because the first time I wanted, for example, to come back to California after the internship I did at Hartford Court and, 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 and the job I had at Hartford Court in Michel Merger, I went and traveled the world, completed all my degrees. But I wanted to come back to that very entrepreneurial, dynamic uh, America, especially in a field as as traditional as the U.S., as, 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 sorry, as, as traditional as wine, the U.S. has that very high energy, high creativity. And so I said, I want to come back. So how do I do that? Well, I sent 350 different resumes. And I got response from, from, from wineries in, in the Central Valley that were offering me five times more money than Newton did at the time. But I knew Newton. I knew that the reputation of Newton. And I knew that my, I wanted to handle, to be part of creating an art and not a manufactured product. And therefore, I directed my career towards Newton, where I was first hired as a as the, the, the assistant winemaker and six months later became the winemaker, uh, uh, you know, of, of, of Newton. And, and it was much more boutique much more luxury, much more artistic. And then, you know, your career kind of is made with path of, of interaction, of meetings, of, of humans. And that's, you know, uh, Mrs. Newton couldn't attend the tasting that was on schedule in the book and called me and asked me, John, can you, can, can you take care of that meeting? I said, yeah, absolutely. And I tasted with a German family, uh, uh, and, you know, for two hours. And then they came back a year and a half later asking me uh, to, to taste with them. And, and they ended up building a state-of-the-art winery in Tuscany in the Marema Toscana called Montevero. And they asked me to, to, to consult for them. And I've been consulting for them for 16 years, uh, wow. you know. 
Another story is is we were buying grapes from this vineyard called Sklar, you know, in in um, in in Rutherford. Um, um, in, in Oakville, actually, uh, um, and 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 Eric Sklar's dad, uh, Dick Sklar, was a really good friend of Peter Newton. And so, at one point, when his son and Robin Baggett wanted to start a winery, uh, you know, they asked Peter Newton if they could steal me away. And Peter, at that time, was selling the company to LVMH and said, "Yeah, of course, take him away." And that's how I. <laughs> I'm a partner of Alpha Omega, you know, uh, um, during Alpha Omega, a, a, a couple of the partners of Alpha Omega uh, got me to start AXR and start the debate with them. So it's really kind of a journey of, of, of friendship. I would say it's the best way to put it. I have to circle back to Newton for just a second. Before we started the podcast, I mentioned to you that I had had lunch with Suha Newton and that over the last two months, I've had a lot of interactions with people who started or are still at Newton. It seems to be a really great, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It seems to be a, a really great incubator for winemakers. And you had mentioned, you know, that they had a wonderful internship program. Well, you know, recently on the podcast, we had Aaron Pott, uh, Alberto Bianchi is coming up, and now you. I'm just curious, when you said you were assistant winemaker at Newton, who was the head winemaker at the time? So, uh, so they hired this at the same time, a guy called Vincent Bernard and I, uh, 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 you know, and Vincent had a little bit more experience than me. So he became the winemaker, but didn't feel, didn't find a lot of, of pleasure in, in, in the U.S. and left fairly fast. And that's how I became the winemaker. And we were replacing Luc Morlay, who had wow. left from Newton to go to Peter Michael at the time. Yeah, yeah, You're of course. Right. Newton is an incubator because if you think about it, Peter Newton was the first person to ever plant Merlot in Napa Valley at Sterling. Then they sold Sterling in the 70s uh, to build Newton because they wanted, they understood the, the, the importance of hillside, the importance of, 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 of niche and, 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 and high end. And they, they bought that square mile of land, you know, on Spring Mountain. And they were hosting, we were having six, seven or eight interns per year. So between the assistant winemakers, the winemaker and the interns, it created a pool of, of people that were interested in wine. Of course, the quality of the wine, probably one of the greatest terroir of Napa Valley up, up there on Spring Mountain. But also Newton was the pioneer of, of naturally fermented wine and unfiltered wine. That's where they created and built their amazing reputation with the unfiltered Chardonnay. So they were kind of a, you, you know, they were a pioneer in a lot of different ways, I think, that attracted a lot of people. You know, I haven't had that unfiltered Chardonnay since last week. <laughs> Still a wonderful wine. Um, but just out of curiosity, did your paths ever cross with a guy by the name of Philip Tony? Uh, actually, no, but I'm a huge fan of his wines. Uh, so so I don't know Philip Tony personally, but I actually buy his wine. As a winemaker, uh, uh, you, you don't want to drink. I don't like to drink what I make, uh, just like you don't want to read a book that you wrote. And so I tend to collect wine. I don't have a big 401k, but I have 10,000 bottles of wine in my wine. <laughs> uh, mainly because it's my passion and I love to learn through through the skills of others. Now, speaking of skills of others, most winemakers that I have met 
they kind of hone their skill on one style or one variety of wine. You, sir, are of a very different fruit tree. You actually take multiple approaches to crafting a lot of different wines. And I'm very interested. You know, I I understand that you have a number of different radically unique wines and you really enjoy blending. Yeah, you know, I think I think in in the, in the sense of wine, and especially in society, in modern society, in the time where we live, uh, you know, we, we live in a world of globalization. So 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 I think it is really important to give wine a sense of place. Uh, nobody can tell me how many skews today, different labels we have in the world. So it's probably one of the most, if not the most competitive business in the world. Uh, we estimate about three hundred to three hundred fifty million different labels in the world. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, they're all rivals. But but you have to, especially in, in high-end winemaking, you have to express a sense of place. So I tend to, to, to be exposed to an extremely special terroir. What is a terroir? It's the interaction of a plant, a soil, and a climate with the people farming them. And so in order to express a location or a varietal, you need to make sure that you maintain a true DNA. And I think that you can do it both ways. You can express the terroir of a, a site, a vineyard, like by making a single vineyard, a single varietal from a single vineyard, or you can express the uniqueness of an appellation, like Napa Valley. And that's when you start blending. But even within a single vineyard, I tend to blend. Why? Because if I take a plot and a specific vineyard, I usually pick it at different times, ferment it in different style to create more diversity to be then able to blend back. Just like humans, wine, I don't believe in perfection. It's not never perfect. So by creating that diversity and having multiple spice on the rack, you actually are able to fill up the gaps. Just like me, I'm a six foot six 265 pound guy, obviously you would not see me really well with a tutu dancing classic ballet, but you could definitely see me on nice ring playing hockey, uh, you know? So, so, so there's always things that you can better in people and, and, and dress up. And, and I see why in the same way. So are you telling me there's actually a picture of you in a tutu? I, I'm pretty sure if you pay my parents uh, early on in my ages, I mean, you can find that. <laughs> So I want to circle back to you mentioned something about different fermentation vessels and methods, even within the same plot. Can you tell me what different fermentation vessels or methods yeah. you're using? I mean, this is kind of interesting. So, 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 so when I arrived from Chateau Lynchbach to actually Newton uh, in 2001, I read an article that kind of changed the way I perceived wine. And that article said that 95% of wine is consumed within 48 hours of its purchase in the US. So I thought, okay, I have to accommodate the market by making also wine that are accessible early. But I am dying and loving older wines. So I had to find a way to widen drinkability. Uh, uh, so the consumer could drink with the wines that I make at age zero or at age zero plus 40 years. And so I thought, how can I do that? And I started looking at what we do with the Primer in Bordeaux, where we actually, after six months, expose the wine to press for price setting and scores. Uh, um, And I said, what we do in Bordeaux, we always put the wine as early as possible for malactic, uh, you know, in the barrel. I said, okay, how can we even put it faster? And I said, well, 
I was the first guy in, in the valley to do it, to pop the head of a 60-gallon barrel out and use a 60-gallon barrel as a fermenter. And what it does it do? Well, first it integrates the wood aromatics, of course, but it also helps polymerizing. What is polymerizing? It's a very barbaric term. It is taking tannins and binding them together so the chains of tannins are softer and rounder on your palate. So the wine becomes silkier if you want earlier on. So you can drink a wine at age zero uh, because these tannin chain actually don't react with your saliva the same way. But they're also more microbiologically stable. So you make a one that is rounder, denser earlier on, but that is more stable through age. And so suddenly you widen the drinkability of your wine. I was the first guy to do barrel fermentation and other tricks for polymerization. And over the last 50 years, that tannin management is probably what I work the most at in order to accomplish that. Okay, my mind is completely blown because I have to say that that is really an interesting tightrope to walk between having wines that are accessible very early on and yet have ageability. Being a fan, by the way, of Chateau Lynchbosch, the 1985 Lynchbosch happens to be my wedding wine uh, and, and wow. still drinking today, by the way. I mean, that, the wine really, every year that we have it on our anniversary continues to evolve and it's just beautiful. And think about that, 1985, that's, that's a while ago. So the fact that you're making wines today that are both accessible and ageable is really uh, a, a credit to your talent. And, and I'm just absolutely fascinated by that. Now I'm going to have to buy two bottles of your wines and, and drink one right away and put one away just to, to see uh, how they compare and contrast. Although uh, I hope we're still friends in 10 years when we do this. Um, so I'm, I'm also interested in how you are adapting your winemaking practices in different regions. For example, I understand that you're taking on a client in Texas? Yeah, so, so today I make wine in Tuscany, Spain, Napa, Sonoma, Washington, Texas, Switzerland. So, so in a few different places, and then you, you just mentioned Texas. Uh, so I just came back two weeks ago from Texas where, where I'm involved with two wineries, Brennan Wineries and Lost Oak Winery. And, and let, let's take Texas. Texas has its own challenges. And, and its challenges is obviously sometimes it's erratic weather. Uh, what do I mean by that? They get hail, they get rain in some parts of Texas in the middle of the growing seasons. In other parts, it's extremely dry. And of course, heat. So what does that heat create? Well, that heat creates that you have a sugar accumulation, right? That your berries accumulate sugar really fast. So sometimes in Texas, you have enough sugar to harvest, but the tannins, the aromas, are not ready, the color is not ready. So, so you have two types of ripeness, the sugar ripeness and what we call the phenolic ripeness, the ripeness of tannin color and, and aromas. And, and, and in Texas, because of that extreme heat sometimes, the sugar are ready before the rest. And so you have to let it hang a little bit to make sure that you still ripen that second, that second part of the grapes. And so, uh, you know, I, I discovered a, a, a region that I think that has an amazing potential and very different problems, very different 
uh, equation to solve in a way. When I'm in Tuscany, uh, it's a different, uh, you know, it's in the middle of Tuscany with small, uh, you know, herbal notes and iodine from the Mediterranean Sea and and, and fairly even uh, temperatures. So that, again, is a very different type, if you want, of equation. And, and, and by traveling and learning and making wine in all these different places, you learn faster. Well, you, you have a lot of versatility, and I want to bring it back to California for just a moment because, of course, with the droughts and the wildfires, I'm sure that's kind of thrown you some curveballs. How have you been handling some of those challenges that you're facing right back at home? Well, yeah, the, the, the drought is, is less of an issue if it's not an extended one. Uh, uh, the plants, uh, the vine is, 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 is an amazing uh, plant, resistant plants to so many different things. And so the, the plant can't compensate in a drought of one year, two years. Where it, it becomes problematic is when it lasts three, three, four, five years, right? Which is still the case. But, but we, because we are a high value crop, we have the technology to mitigate water needs. Uh, we, everything is in drip system, so we actually consume very little water. And we have ways and technology today to measure exactly to the drop how much water the plant needs to perform. Now comes the fires. The fires, you know, have happened a few times. And in 2020, for example, I have not made any red in Napa. Why? Because the fire had too much of a big impact. But, but the fires is never uh, rarely raging through a vineyard, right? It's usually vineyards are a really good fire break because it's cultivated land and it's plants that are alive. So usually vineyards are, are fire breaks, except if they are organically farmed and on hillside and the power of the fire is so high and so hot that it actually does burn. But, but most of the time, they're, they're good. The problem with, with fire years is that the smoke which are volatile phenols, if you want. After fire burns wood, for example, it makes lignin, degrades lignin in these volatile phenols. And that carries with smoke. And that smoke it is absorbed by the berry and binded to connected, if you want, to sugar. So then when you ferment your wine, you have notes of campfire, sometimes, you know, uh, ashtray, sometimes... Uh, you know, burned wood and stuff like that. And these uh, at high-end wine are not notes that you, you you want. And so in 2020, most of the clients that I'm involved with in Napa Valley uh, have decided not to make reds. Wow. Wow. So this is something that we euphemistically refer to as smoke taint. Correct. Yeah. Oh, wow. I am so sorry to hear that. But hopefully, hopefully these fires will be few and far between and that your challenges will uh, really just be something that are quite manageable. But I have to say, Jean, with your skills and your versatility and to some degree with your risk-taking, my money's on you. Thanks. I'll try. I can promise you one thing. Uh, because I don't believe in perfection, uh, you, you all know that, that most wines are rated on a scale from zero to 100. And many times in my career had the, the maximum uh, you know, score. But for me, these wines were not perfect. And it is our job as winemakers to always look in how we can better, how we can push the envelope. And I think that's what defines a passion, is, is the real will to keep on fighting year after year to better a product. Well, all this talk about 
almost perfect wines has made me very thirsty. So it's come to the part of our podcast where what's in your glass? Well, the first one that's in my glass is a 2020 Sauvignon Blanc from AXR Winery. AXR is a winery located in, in San Lina, Napa Valley. And, and as I just mentioned, you know, we did not make any reds, but we were able to make whites because especially Sauvignon Blanc were picked much earlier uh, before the fire became a real problem uh, and had a huge impact on, on the grapes. And so, uh, you know, the biggest flaw or problem with Napa, I think, is, is often heat. And so Sauvignon Blanc is a very thin skin varietal. Therefore, we grow it down south closer to the San Pablo Bay because that body of water reacts like a system and really mitigates that water and, and help us protect, if you want, the integrity of the fruit and the fragility almost of Sauvignon Blanc. And so what I do, there's two major direction of winemaking in Sauvignon Blanc when you think about it and you want to summarize it. There's a New Zealander way, which is these Sauvignon Blanc that are very uh, metallic, very high acidity driven, very linear in their profile. Uh, sometimes, you know, cassis buds and, and, and stuff like that. And you have, of course, the Bordeaux version, which is barrel fermented with a lot of lees work, much more textural, rounder, right? So I tried to do a little bit of both uh, because I believe diversity makes greater uh, greater people and greater society. So, so I make part of the Sauvignon Blanc in stainless steel at cold fermentation to kind of go and get that metallic highest New Zealander profile. And I do part of it in barrel with Lee's work to get the texture. And then I blend them before bottling. So it gives a fairly aromatic wine, but that still has texture. And the great, amazing test to what I do, because you can think, okay, that's another marketing pitch. Of course you can. But, but Scott, what, what, what I really believe in, try that Sauvignon Blanc and try aging it. Put that Sauvignon Blanc away for two, three, four, five, six years and see how it evolves. And you will see and be able to taste that that density, that texture aspect will support these aromas over time and make it a quite, a, a quite exceptional wine, hopefully, if I did my job right. So I've never heard Sauvignon Blanc quite described like that, <laughs> that you make it like a community of people with diversity. Yes, that's it. You're absolutely right. I make it. I try to give different profile, different, you know, DNA, uh, because for me, more brain is better than one. And so when you have all these different facets of the wine and you bring them back together with just blending, you know, before bottling, then then you get a wine that is more layered. How would you describe the flavor profile of this particular wine? Well, uh, th that particular wine is 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 actually for me. A, a lot on the on the cassis bud. So there's a flower component, flowery component, but it's very tropical as well. Uh, and that means on the mango, passion fruit, uh, you know, sometimes uh, almost honeysuckle, uh, you know, type of type of thing. So, so Sauvignon Blanc, that Sauvignon Blanc is very aromatic, but then you put it on the mouth here and you have that backbone of acidity supported by the lees work. And the lees work are usually apricot-y, uh, you know, a little bit more nuttiness sometimes and stuff like that to, to coat that fruity, uh, passion fruit tropical notes. So it sounds like if Cloudy Bay and Chateau Chevalier had a baby... <laughs> It might be this wine. 
Yeah, Scott, you know your wines really well. Yeah, it, it, well, that would be exactly true of the of the great, uh, you know, iconic wines uh, of the Sauvignon Blancs two direction that we were just discussing about. Oh, merci. I appreciate the compliment. Uh, let's move on to your next class. Uh, now, this one's kind of interesting. Tell me about the 2017 we're going to try. Well, yeah, the debate is actually um, uh, an amazing concept. The debate is a wine that I started with a friend of mine, Rob McKay, uh, and his family used to own a small restaurant called Taco Bell uh, um, and, and sold Taco Bell. Wait, 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 wait. No, stop, 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 stop. Your friend's family used to own Taco Bell? Yeah, so they sold Taco Bell to PepsiCo in the 80s. Uh, uh, so, so they built the, the the business, the franchise, you know, for for many many years. Yeah, absolutely. And now you're doing a a winery with him. Yeah, so so he's a partner at Alpha Omega as well, and that's how okay. we. And we became friends, and we realized over over our, over time and, and and building our friendship that the greatest moments we were always having was on the table with a glass of wine, discussing, exchanging, and we said society's moving away from human interaction and time. We need to do something about it. So we decided to create almost a concept of, of, of the debate. And the, the concept of the debate is a three pack of three different single vineyards. Uh, in this particular case, we have Artelade, which is Pritchard Hill. So we have Artelade, but we also do Denali, uh, which is St. Lina above uh, Phelps, and, uh, and of course, Sacroche, which is above Aubert du Soleil uh, uh, on, the, on the eastern side. And so we just want people to taste three different wines made by the same person, me, uh, in the same way, and let them judge and talk. And so even the bottles, as you as, as you saw, are wrapped into the newspaper of topics of the year that the wine was made. Because it is not to us to dictate the taste, it is not to tell uh, us to tell people to like something or not. It is to us to expose three different wines and let them interact and enjoy the pleasure of life. And I think that's really the concept of the debate. And this wine that Artelade, that was named after our children, is Pritchard Hill. And Pritchard Hill is a northeastern side of Napa with elevation, 1,800 feet of elevation by Lake Hennessy. So it gets some of that cool air to slow the ripening down. And it is on a very, very volcanic rocky soil that has high iron content. So on this particular cab, you have that sexy lushness of a Cabernet from Napa, warmer uh, climate Cabernet, balanced with that amazing linear minerality that maintains that. And I always say in a red wine, you have to think about a red wine as a person. The backbone is the acidity, the skeleton is the tannin. And the bigger the wine is, the more you need a strong backbone and skeleton to hold the wine together. And when you have such a great site as Pritchard and Artelade uh, to, to, to do that, to give you that minerality and that acidity and that freshness, it usually gives pretty amazing results. Well, you know, I have to say that um, uh, before you and I met, I asked somebody about you and and they used one word to describe you, Jean, and it was passionate. And man, does that come through in your descriptions of these two wines. Now, out of curiosity, if our listeners are interested in finding these wines, how can we get the AXR? How can we find the debate? 
Uh, the AXR, uh, you can actually log on their website, AXRNapaValley.com and the debate, the, the debatewines.com and, and order them. Or you can just email me at uh, Jean, J-E-A-N, at J-H, letter J, letter H, wineconsulting.com. Wow. Well, thank you so much for being my guest today, Jean. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast and I know you're a very, very busy guy, so I do genuinely appreciate the time you spent with me today. Well, Scott, thank you very much for having me, and hopefully very soon we'll be able to enjoy a glass of wine in the, in the valley together. Nothing, nothing, my friend, would make me happier, and I look forward to catching up with you and meeting you in person. Uh, anytime. My door is always open. Merci. Well, that'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. The music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Don't forget to catch me on my Wine of the Week show on WTOP and follow me on Twitter. And remember, in the meantime, do good, drink well. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.